Do New England values refute the basic premise of the 1619 Project? I'll talk about that on episode 771 of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Listen, you need to give me that email address at brianmcclanahan.com. B-R-I-O-N McClanahan.com. Give me the email address. Get the free ebook, Forgotten Founders. Free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Get on my email list, and you're going to get great deals on new and forthcoming courses at McClanahan Academy. Plus, I can keep in touch with you, which is a fantastic thing. So, McClanahanAcademy.com is the best way to support the show financially. I've got over 20 classes available for purchase there. And so when you purchase a class, if you like the podcast, you're going to love the classes. I've got new on-demand classes coming up starting in February, probably close to the end of the month. But starting in February, I have new on-demand classes. So you want to check those out, but there's a lot of them there. And when I do have new classes come out, if you're on the email list, you're going to get a coupon to get a discount on the class. So head over to brianmcclanahan.com. You can also click on the support tab while you're there, throw a few pennies my way, or go to anchor.fm to do the same thing. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you like it. Give it that five-star review. Leave a text review wherever you can. Comment on the YouTube channel if you're watching on YouTube. Also click on the super thanks button under the video. Lots of great ways to support the show. And again, send me those show requests. I want to see what you want to hear. All right, well... This is actually a listener-generated episode. This piece was sent to me. And I I don't want to be too hard on it, um, simply because it's written by an undergraduate. And it's at FEE, uh, which is a, an interesting you know, economic libertarian site. Um, I like uh, some of the people that write for them. Uh, Lawrence Reed is uh, fantastic. If you don't ever read anything by Lawrence Reed, you should. He's really good on economics and economic history. Um so they, they oftentimes, and, and look, the Abbeville Institute will do this too, will publish stuff from undergraduates or uh, people that uh, just don't have the same kind of educational background and they write material, but you want to encourage people to do it. You want to encourage them to write and get involved in this because that's how we keep uh, promoting the material that we have, right, and growing for the future. You want to keep doing that. So this particular piece is written by an undergraduate and um, unfortunately, uh, it's just not very good in terms of the historical background of it. I can understand where the individual is coming from that wrote it because uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, which is the focus of the piece, became kind of the, the darling uh, intellectual of the conservative movement in the 1990s. If you go back and look at Newt Gingrich, that's who really elevated de Tocqueville to the status of super American intellectual. Now, not he's not, of course, American. He's French, but he traveled to the United States, and so he defined what America was. Now, there are some interesting things that de Tocqueville says in his travels across the United States, but you have to take this for what it is. It's the impressions or opinions of a French a national coming into the United States and observing what the United States is in the, in the uh, early 20th century. Or, I'm sorry, early 19th century. So uh, de Tocqueville is not always uh, reliable, and I would say not always the best judge of what the United States is or isn't. Now, again, he does make some interesting observations at times. Uh, but this particular piece not only suffers from you know, too much de Tocqueville love, but also from a lack of understanding of uh, American history even at this particular time period. And, and that's because de Tocqueville didn't really understand 
uh, America at when he was when he was traveling through the United States uh, in any particular way, um, at least in regard to the South, which is where uh, he has some things to say about the South that just simply aren't true. So uh, the premise of this piece, of course, is the 1619 Project. Now, the other thing this piece suffers from is a lack of understanding what the 1619 Project really says. The 1619 Project, let me just spell this out because, again, some people would, would question what I'm saying here. But let me explain. If you go back and look at Nicole Hannah-Jones' opening essay, she does essentially say that 1619 is the founding of America because that's when America decides it's going to use slavery as a basis for its economy and society, particularly in the South. But, of course, that is a little short-sighted. Uh, because we know that slavery was not just in the South. Uh, but regardless, uh, this is her starting point. So she makes slavery the focus of American history. Now, uh, this is not something that's unusual, I would say. This is not something that other people haven't done. But she's also, and this is where I've said that she's this, the other side of the same coin with the Straussians. She also essentially makes the point that uh, America was founded on the proposition that all men are created equal, but that nobody ever lived up to that. So they, they say it, she believes it, that that's what America really is, and she says it. Look, black Americans held on to this belief longer than anyone else. Her point is that black Americans have been the most patriotic and dedicated Americans to the founding principles, and that no white Americans have ever really lived up to this that they always believed in slavery, they always believed in race-based slavery, they were always racist, and so they said these things but never really were firmly committed to them. So her entire position is not that slavery is just the original, uh, you know, uh, the position of the founding. I mean, slavery founded America. It's that the United States was founded on the proposition nation, but that it never lived up to it. You see, that's the main point of the 1619 Project. And so if you don't get that complexity, you're going to miss things. So conservatives have taken a lot of time to try to say, well, slavery wasn't the, wasn't the founding of, of the United States. It wasn't there. Even yesterday, I talked about John Meacham and how he says, well, I mean, we have all these anti-slavery societies. You see, America was always in, uh, believed in some kind of you know, proposition nation. We had all these people that did it. It wasn't just the, the founding period, 1776, there were, there were uh, people interested in abolition before that. Okay. Um, and, and I don't think that Nicole Hannah-Jones would even argue this point, that there were people that were interested in abolition, but she would say that actions speak louder than words. And even John Mitchum eventually comes around to that point, that, well, we had these people that didn't believe in this. And, of course, they're always going to point fingers back at the South, uh, ignoring the complicit role of New England in all this, which is the funniest part of it. And I think that's where Nicole Hannah-Jones and the 1619 Project wouldn't do that. Uh, they don't ignore New England or Lincoln's racism. I mean, if, again, if you read that first essay, she very much hammers Abraham Lincoln for being a hypocrite when he says what he said, when he believes in uh, inequalities between the races, he believes in colonization. I mean, these are things that certainly would taint Lincoln's position in the proposition nation myth. So she's, she's open about this. The issue is, how, do, how does everyone else receive this? And of course, was the United States based on the proposition nation? I mean, that's where really, I think that we need to start hammering this. And of course, the Straussians aren't going to do it. 
Uh, no one really wants to do this because the charge is, is naturally going to come back. And even Michael Anton did this to me. Well, you must believe in slavery. No, you don't have to believe in slavery to say that, that, that the proposition nation wasn't the foundation of the United States. But see, Anton even fell into this trap. It's ridiculously stupid. It's a, it's a, it's a juvenile and sophomoric argument. And it's something the left does when they go and attack people on the right for saying, you know, Proposition Nation isn't real. The United States wasn't founded on this proposition. Oh, oh well, then you must believe that. Uh, then you must be pro-slavery. If you, if you say that, what kind of America do you want then? If you don't believe in an America that's founded on the proposition that all men are created equal, then you must want some kind of fascist dictatorship. You must want to reintroduce slavery in America. That's what you really want to do. Oh, yeah, I mean, that's what I'm calling for right now. This is just so stupid. It's the most ridiculous, sophomoric argument you can make. But this is what they resort to because that's the only thing they have. When you make these emotional charges, and those are emotional arguments. They're not logical arguments. They're emotional arguments. When you make those emotional arguments, of course, you can score points in the American polity because most Americans... Um, in, in terms of real logical arguments, are immature. They, they are emotionally immature, and they're intellectually immature, and so they don't really get the nuances of everything. So it's a very hard sell, I'll say that, to say, look, the United States was not based on the proposition nation. Um, it was based on the Anglo-American tradition of, uh, of decentralization, limited central authority, individual liberty and oh, oh yeah individual liberty except but of course in context of that they did argue for citizens and throughout american history there have been people that weren't citizens that were not included in that okay but once you have citizenship which today of course you have people of all races in the united states uh that are citizens well then that applies to them and this is something of course when you teach western civilization or you teach uh, U.S. history, and you have groups of people in your classes as you're doing it who were not initially included in these statements, you can still say, well, these apply to you today because of the fact that you are now citizens of the United States, citizens of the states in which you reside. So every state has a Bill of Rights. The United States has a Bill of Rights. When you have those things, then, of course, they apply to you. And this is what the founding generation was talking about anyways. And, of course, they all believed that there was some type of natural aristocracy, so not everyone was really equal. And they were, whether, whether anyone on the right likes to admit it or not, and they don't like to do it because that, again, they think weakens their argument. I don't think it does at all. It's just historical fact. These people did not believe in equality of the races. They just didn't. Uh, they had different views on race in the 18th century and in the 17th century and in the 19th century than we have today. They just didn't believe in it. Right? They, didn't, they couldn't see that there could be uh, you know, another path in this way. So uh, without question, um, you had racist people, as we define it today, in the United States, uh, in the American colonies, the British North American colonies. And this was the norm. Okay? This wasn't odd at this particular time period. What these people try to do is say, well, this is odd. Uh, even Meacham said that. It's illogical. No one really believed it was, uh, I mean, the vast majority of, of people in the world didn't really believe that it was illogical in the 18th century to argue that there were differences in talents and race. This is something that people believed across the world uh, at that time period. Now, again, as I said yesterday, it also ignores the complicity of 
Africans in the African slave trade. That's something that Nicole Hannah-Jones doesn't really get into as much and the 1619 Project ignores because that doesn't fit their narrative. And in fact, what that does prove, as Thornton points out in his book on the African slave trade, that Africans were actually very uh, uh, pr uh, promising and prominent uh, individuals. They, they had uh, full control of the economics and, uh, and the structure of slavery. They were not simple victims they were complicit owners of this particular worldwide trade and economic institution of slavery. They were not just simply passive, barbaric, stupid people. They understood what was going on, and they were certainly part of it as everybody else. Um, so it actually, just like Fogel and Engerman in Time on the Cross sought to prove that blacks were not lazy and, and uh, stupid, that's essentially what Thornton is doing, but everyone takes that as, oh, this is just some kind of you know, racist pro-slavery treatise. And of course, Thornton and Fogel and Engerman always said that that's not the, what they were trying to do. Um, and it's, it's unfortunate that people can't really get the nuance and they look at this from a political perspective. So let me get into this piece. There are some issues with it and I'll point those out again. Uh, he's an undergraduate, so I'll go a little easier. But I would say this, if this particular piece ever ended up on, on my desk as a professor, um, it would have gotten um, excoriated, right? I mean, I, I would have I would ripped this thing apart. It wouldn't have uh, really made it um, very far uh, in terms of a good grade. Uh, but this is from FEE, again, FEE.org, and it was published uh, on January 19th. And so the title is, Why the Greatest Refutation of the 1619 Project May Come from a French Liberal. And so this is by a, man named, a young man named Kyle Reynolds. And so... The piece says, perhaps we as 21st century Americans should, should adopt some humility surrounding our own abilities to interpret and understand the motivations and events encompassing the founding and early years of our nation, lest we run the risk of rewriting and corrupting our history. Okay, so that's a nice statement. We should adopt some humility surrounding our own abilities to interpret and understand. Understand, right? Understanding is the most important thing you can do when you're going out and studying histories. It's not just interpretation. That's where you get into issues. It's understanding. What is the understanding that you have to have? And that, you could, you could say, that's historicism, right? But when you understand the people of the time and you don't try to um, interpret it based on your own values at your own period of time, well, this is where uh, you, you need to do these things as a historian. You understand people from the time in which they lived. It has now been nearly 200, two and a half centuries, I'm sorry, since George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Ben Franklin, and the numerous other brave and distinguished signers of the Declaration sent this young uh, nation into bloody battle in the hopes of securing liberty and independence. So it's been a long time. He calls it impetuous or impetuous nation. It's been a long time since this happened, but we've never had a nation. See, he's already operating, young, young Reynolds here is already operating from a myth that the United States is a nation. Never has been, it never will be, because it was founded as a federal republic. And you wouldn't have had uh, many people in the United States, even after the founding, argue that we had a nation. In fact, as early as 1754, there was some discussion about a union. But Ben Franklin pointed out, well, this, the colonies are too provincial. They're not going to want to do it. And when you say they're too provincial, what you're saying is there's no national identity. They don't identify as anything but simply from their own colonial perspectives. 
Now, you did have Americans that used the term nation. You know, George Washington's farewell address was certainly designed to try to create some kind of glue. But the whole point of the address, if you look at it from what he's really doing, is, is recognizing that there's no national identity in America when he's leaving office in 1797. It just didn't exist. I mean, Washington understood, and so did Hamilton and Madison, and that, the, the na that the nation was a myth. There's no proposition nation in 1797. It doesn't exist. So he's trying to write this to say, look, we need to think about these things. We need to cap some kind of glue. Washington was the glue, and Washington's gone. He dies just a couple of years later, of course. When Washington's gone, that glue has worn off. It's not super glue. It's Elmer's glue, and Elmer's glue is picked off very easily. So he started seeing the seams of America come apart because there never really was a national identity. You had people talk about it, but to have it, you didn't really start seeing that until the 1860s. And why in the 1860s? Because you had the North bludgeon the South. Now, it didn't mean that the North wasn't sectional. They were. But what we had at that point, as Charles Sumner kept doing in the 1850s, is we have an America dominated now by New England. New England wins. New England identity wins. And that becomes American national identity. That's important. Two and a half centuries is a long time. A contemporary individual who claims to know what was truly lurking in the nation's heart and soul during that revolutionary period was nefarious and wicked and in sharp contrast to the stated goals and beliefs of the founders must either be the greatest or grandest of scholars or an absolute charlatan. So to know exactly what these people were thinking makes you either the grandest of scholars or a charlatan. Contemporary, anybody now who claims to know what was truly lurking in the nation's heart and soul, if you know, then either you're a grand scholar or you're a charlatan. So he says, that is, however, precisely the thesis of the New York Times 1619 Project. It's the thesis that she knows what was lurking in the hearts and minds and soul of the revolutionary period. Well, I don't think that Nicole Hannah-Jones actually says that. She simply looks at the actions of the people and says, well, this is what they really... Actions speak louder than words, and we may not know exactly what these people are thinking at all times, but we know how they acted. We know, for example, that uh, in the founding period, uh, you did not have uh, a very tolerant... America when it came to even issues of religious toleration, particularly in New England, which of course Kyle Reynolds makes the case that if we want to live in a great society, let's live like New England. We already do, right? But you look at New England in terms of religious toleration, it wasn't there. We know that New England did start to abolish slavery first through state action. Um, in, in Massachusetts, though, John Adams did write a pro-slavery constitution. That one was rejected. The, other, the next one was adopted, and it was only through a court order, essentially, a court decision that we started seeing slavery uh, gradually abolished in Massachusetts. And we know that it was gradually abolished everywhere else. Slavery still existed, even in New Jersey, into 1865. So it took time. That's something the South was never given the benefit of. A abolition in the South came swift, and there was no period of you know, education, economic growth, integration in any way. It just didn't happen. We also know that after the war was over, we had three northern states reject, outright reject, giving blacks the ability to vote. So this is one of the reasons why northerners wanted to have, or at least the Republicans wanted to have, the 15th Amendment. 
Uh, it wasn't just because of the South, which of course they were very interested in. That would give them votes and the opportunity to win elections because you had, in some states, uh, larger populations of black voters and white voters. The 14th Amendment took care of that problem because it disfranchised a whole bunch of white voters. And that way they could win elections. But the, the 15th Amendment, of course, giving blacks the ability to vote, would uh, make it to where they could win in these southern states. And they did for a few years until um, after uh, Reconstruction. But regardless, there were also northern states that uh, did not allow blacks the ability to vote either. Uh, and look, um, you know, Elizabeth Cady Stanton was very upset about this process because she thought women should have been given the right to vote in, in the 1860s and 70s. They had supported the war too. They had been dedicated Republicans to the proposition nation. And then, of course, uh, no, nah, we're not going to give women their ability to vote. That, that's not going to happen. Uh, but black men can vote. So there's a whole lot of things going on here. That is this idea of equity and equality and this. And it just pe people were selective about it. And they didn't really believe it. Only politically expedient proposals were adopted. Uh, it wasn't about ideology. Nine times out of ten. It was about what they could do to win elections. And getting former slave, former men, male slaves, the ability to vote, they thought would do just that. Nicole Hannah-Jones, the author of the Project's inaugural essay, argues that the founders were motivated not by the ideas of liberty, freedom, and democracy that they preached, but rather by the preservation and promulgation of slavery. It is subjugation, not liberation, according to Jones, that defines the American story. And again, I think this is a little too simplistic. Um, she argues in her inaugural essay that, yes, slavery was the foundation of the American experiment and the American experience, which I think is incorrect, too. But the fact is, she does argue that people did say these things, they just never lived up to them. She believes, as she says, black Americans believed in these things. They were the most patriotic of all Americans. Because we had this proposition nation, but white Americans never lived up to it. So she wouldn't say that liberty, freedom, and democracy were not the foundation of America. She just says that they were, and I think he, well, he says they're not motivated by it, um, they, they didn't really believe it. Um, and I would say that they, I mean, while they, of course, talked about uh, these things, and of course, a lot of these phrases ended up in state bill of rights and state constitutions, et cetera, et cetera, and they were fairly committed, I think, at least initially. And you, you read what people said about it. Well, I mean, some people, uh, you know, kind of got caught up in the moment, but within just a very short period of time, they weren't really following through on this stuff anywhere. And of course, uh, within a few years, you have the French Revolution, which uh, greatly um, uh, caused uh, you know many of these people to, to question these very uh, you know leftist ideas, uh, Enlightenment ideas of the 18th century. When you have the Reign of Terror and other things going on, so they started to question this stuff. And when you have slave insurrections in the Caribbean, you start to question these things because that could come here to American shores. It was for this reason that she believed 1619, the, the year the first African slaves were brought to the New World, is as important to the American story as 1776. Parts of the essay even paint 1619 as the nation's true central founding. And of course, she did make that case. They had to later walk that back and because they knew that wasn't ever going to fly. But, I mean, she does still argue that the basic tenets of this first essay are entirely true. She was just, they're having a new series on this, and she was just uh, interviewed for this, and they asked her, you know, what one word could you use to describe the 1619 Project? And she says, truth. So 
her in her opinion, I think if she could somehow not have as much backlash, she would say that 1619 is a true founding, not 1776. Later in her essay, Jones makes a point that has drawn particular ire and criticism from the historical community. She writes, one of the primary reasons some of the colonists decided to declare their independence from Britain was because they wanted to protect the institution of slavery. Now, um, <clears throat> let me make a point about this, and I've said this before on this show. Uh, if you read this, if you read the war from the position of the British and Lord Dunmore, for example, or you look at the actions in New York, there were certainly those in the empire that could make the case that Americans were fighting to protect slavery. They issued emancipation proclamations in Virginia and New York. They made slave, ending slavery essentially a war aim that uh, those that would side with the British would then be free. And we know that when the war was over, and particularly in New York, Washington demanded that the slaves that had been rounded up by the British in New York be returned. The British refused, and Washington was incensed about this. So the fact is that um, there were some that could argue that the war was about slavery. Now, I could say, of course, it wasn't. Slavery, the United States at the time, all of the states were slaveholding states in 1776. Every single one of them. There wasn't one that wasn't a slaveholding state in 1776. All of them were. In fact, you go back and look at the important role that slavery played in Massachusetts and Connecticut and Rhode Island. Uh, you find very quickly that slavery was an integral part of their economy. The slave trade, importantly, and of course you had a lot of Puritans and then Massachusetts and Connecticut citizens who had heavy investments in plantations in the Caribbean. So uh, this wasn't something that they were against. They weren't against it. Now, were they fighting for it as a whole other issue? And of course you did have some pretty prominent men in New England society make some critical statements about slavery. You also had that in the South, by the way. You had Jefferson, who tried to lay the blame of slavery at the feet of the empire. That was rejected by uh, the delegates from South Carolina. But uh, the fact is, uh, to, to the Continental Congress, the fact is um, there were people that were critical of it at the time. They didn't really necessarily want to end it, or at least they didn't know how to do it. But um, in their mind, they didn't know how to do it because they didn't know how to integrate all these slaves into society very quickly. This is where they came up with colonization. But regardless, um, to say that the nation was, was founded on slavery is an incorrect statement. Did it tolerate slavery? Absolutely. Was it an important part of the Southern economy and the Northern economy? Entirely yes. And, and part important part of the Northern economy until 1808 when the slave trade, international slave trade ended. So was it part of that? Yes. Uh, was it the foundation of America? No. That's the part where Nicole Hannah-Jones oversteps where she says is the foundation of America. And then she, he says she goes further still, saying that the nation was founded not as a democracy, but as a slaveocracy. Now, again, that's an emotional charge that's not based on fact. That is a real problem. You did have, of course, large slave owners in the United States. You had slave owners north and south in the United States. You had the slave trade important. You had uh, slavery as an important part of the American economy. But it was not the foundation of America. What the foundation of America was, of course, is the Anglo-American political and legal tradition. And you have uh, decentralization, independence. This was really the foundation of America. They maintained what they already had before that, with the exception of a king. But when Jefferson would say that 
uh, they didn't come up with anything new. What he was essentially suggesting there is that in 1776 in America, you generally had the same belief structure that you had in New England or in England. I'm sorry, American England were the same. They believed the same things outside of the structure of government. So Reynolds says it would not be an exaggeration to say that Jones is attempting to rewrite American history. By pointing to 1619 as America's true birth and arguing that slavery and oppression have been the dominating forces shaping American mores and culture since colonial times, she is doing away with every commonly held belief regarding the American founding and constitution. This is the important thing. She's attacking a myth. He basically admits it. She's attacking the Lincolnian myth. And if you attack the Lincolnian myth, then you're going to have pushback. She's attacking this proposition nation myth, at least essentially, but she's really not. She's actually saying the myth is there, but they didn't believe it. Only black Americans believed it. That's the point of the essay that people miss. But who are we as fellow contemporaries to argue against her? We don't truly know the contents of our nation's collective character in the early years. Perhaps Jones' narrative is a valid alternative to the American story. If only an impartial observer had meticulously cataloged and chronicled American democracy within the lifetime of numerous founding fathers, we have a credible answer. So he's kind of being, you know, sarcastic there. It's snarky. And he says, thankfully, Alexis de Tocqueville did just that. So he goes back to de Tocqueville's Democracy in America, published in 1835. And he says, this is the true understanding of the founding. So he says, in the book's first volume, de Tocqueville discusses the point of departure for the colonists. He describes the foundation of new modes in political thought and the adoption and dissemination of altogether democratic and republican political life. Now, this was not new modes. Essentially, Jefferson argued it wasn't new. They didn't do anything new. This was an expression of the American mind. And while they certainly did say they weren't going to have a king, which you could say was radical in the 18th century, and this is what Gordon Wood essentially points out, that part of it was radical, the structure of American democracy, the structure of American government, was essentially unchanged from what they believed they had from a central authority in Great Britain. This is the whole point of the Constitution. We have a federal republic. They believed the Constitution of the Empire was federal in structure, and so that didn't change. Now, they did tear down the king, and they had legislatures ascendant, and of course, then you get to the Constitution, and they centralize power a little more, they create an executive branch, they try to do some things that were much more in line with the original model of government from the empire, they just don't create a king, now, even though Hamilton wanted one. But they do centralize power here. I mean, this is something the Constitution certainly does. The idea is to centralize more power. The Anti-Federalists argued this is exactly what was going to happen. The proponents of the Constitution, though, argued over and over again, that's not the point of it. It's not the point of, of the Constitution. Uh, it was still to, to maintain this federal republic, but yet we're going to have some things the states are not capable of doing themselves, which would go to the central authority. That was commerce and defense. That's it. I mean, this is what they argue. So then this is where Reynolds, again, de Tocqueville is wrong, of course, and where Reynolds has, um, unfortunately, a, a not a very good understanding of colonial American history, and de Tocqueville either. Tocqueville saw the New England townships as the principle in life of, the, of American freedom. It was also New England that Tocqueville believed America's unique interconnection and interweaving of the spirit of religion and the spirit of freedom first took hold. The spirit of religion. Are you talking about in New Hampshire where they would execute Quakers and Baptists 
Massachusetts would do the same thing or expel them. You talking about that? Or are you looking at Virginia, which had the first statute of religious freedom? This is why the 1607 Project at Abbeville Institute is going to be so important. Because we're going to reorient this. The whole idea is not to look to New England, but actually to look to Virginia as the real state, the real colony that we have to understand the American founding. And many of the things we think of American come, uh, think of as American come out of Virginia, not New England. If you use New England as the model, you're bound to be disappointed because it creates this fake proposition nation myth. Not because they believed it, but because they rhetorically relied on it later on where their history didn't show that they had a commitment to it. That's the problem. Tocqueville's linkage of Christianity, specifically Puritanism, to freedom leads him to regard 1620, the year of the first New England settlers signed to the historic Mayflower Compact, as a true founding of America in terms of the mores and ideals that would come to shape the young nation. Again, Tocqueville is completely incorrect about this. You do have the 1620 project. I think some people are running around with this too, but completely incorrect. This is all, I mean, that's a major distortion. And I mean, some people have pointed to this, you know, the Mayflower Compact. This, 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 this Mayflower Compact, so important. You already had representative government in Virginia the year before. So this is just ridiculous. That's why I say Tocqueville and Reynolds, young Reynolds, young Master Reynolds, don't really understand American history. He even quotes the compact. Of course, he does this. I'm not going to read that. The sentiments of equality and democracy outlined in this historic document uh, equality for some, because, of course, in the Mayflower Compact, if you were not members of the Pilgrim faith at that time, if you weren't members of the Pilgrim Society, you were going to be an exile, an outcast. Only the male citizens were equal, not anyone else. And there were other people, the adventurers on that boat that weren't accepted into Pilgrim Society. They were outcasts, so they weren't really equal there. And it wasn't really that democratic. They were forced to sign this thing. You had to sign it if you were a member of the church. It's not very democratic, is it? Outline in this historic document continued to shape the culture of New England through the subsequent decades and centuries. And as new pilgrims, the majority of whom were also Puritans, continued to arrive in New England, these convictions were only strengthened. Tocqueville also notes the importance of the socioeconomic stations of the Puritans. In England, Puritans traditionally occupied the middle class, Again, uh, young Master Reynolds needs to read David Hackett Fisher's uh, book, Albion Seed, to really figure out what the Puritans were. And, you know, there's been several other things done on this, but these people weren't that interested in, you know, middle class values. There was a certain hierarchy in Puritan society that was artificial, 100% artificial. And their idea of liberty, as you attained higher status in society, you got more liberties. It's not very democratic. Puritans often tra uh, traditionally occupied the middle class. By coming to America with no established upper classes, the Puritans were able to throw off despotic arist aristocratic rule found in the mother country. This gave rise to a new understanding of equality and democracy akin to the near total democracy found in ancient times. Oh my gosh, what a <laughs> that's just ridiculous. That's just ridiculous. Now you can say, again by the 18th century, New England was interested in annual elections and they spoke very democratically, but they didn't really believe it. They weren't very committed to it. I mean, look, John Hancock, the guy that was, you know, oh, John Hancock, Sam Adams, Sam Adams, John Hancock. John Hancock in particular, though, was the wealthiest man in America. <laughs> the Baron of Beacon Hill. He loved the aristocracy. He wasn't really a Democrat. He could speak this way. He wasn't really that committed to it. Sam Adams certainly would 
speak in democratic terms, and he um, had uh, a much more democratic bent. But of course, the man came from from wealth, and he, he squandered most of it. The only reason he even had any money is because his wife was frugal enough to figure it out. But um, he wasn't a man of the quote-unquote people, even though he worked among them very well. And, and again, there was a hierarchy in New England society. Don't think for a second there wasn't. There wasn't total democracy. As Tocqueville notes, the development of such a system would not have been possible in the old feudal society found in 17th century Europe. Now, I mean, you could say that Europe was moving, England even was moving more in this direction in certain parts of the island. Um, you know, the parliament was gaining ascendancy. That was the uh, that was the premise of uh, the English Civil War, the Parliament against the Crown in the 17th century. <laughs> uh, so you still had the House of Lords, but Parliament did take a much greater role, and particularly in particular the House of Commons after the English Civil War. Southern political culture did not develop in this manner, whereas but it did. Whereas New England was populated by educated, largely middle class Puritans who sought political and religious freedom, the South was populated by gold seekers, industrialists, and farmers. This is one of the greatest myths that that has ever been promulgated. This was not what it was populated by. This is Tocqueville simply regurgitating some Puritan nonsense about the founding, about Virginia, I should say, in, in, in that period of time. We know this wasn't the case. It wasn't gold seekers, industrialists, and, of course, yeah, farmers. Well, they were all farmers in New England, too. And the industrialists were found more in New England than the South. But regardless, um, this is just a complete distortion of what the, the 17th century was like in Virginia. These immigrants almost exclusively occupied the lower classes of England. Again, not true. Not true at all. <laughs> that's, just, I mean, that's laughable, the statement. It's just laughable. But young Master Reynolds, I don't think, understands early American history, except from his distorted view of Tocqueville, or, I don't know, uh, people that promote uh, the Puritans as being the symbol of America. They were concerned primarily with making money, and in Tocqueville's world possessed no noble thought. As this last phrase indicates, Tocqueville juxtaposes these settlements quite harshly to those of New England. He writes that no immaterial scheme presided at the foundation of the South. Again, not true. But um, Reynolds thinks it is true, I guess. I mean, he, he seems to regurgitate simply what de Tocqueville says and say that you know, England is the is the high-minded place of, of America. It was this lack of high ideals among the settlers of the South that led Virginia to introduce slavery soon after the creation of the colony, according to de Tocqueville. Again, but there were slaves in New England. Massachusetts enslaved the Indians. I mean, slavery was already here. Uh, in, you know, 1619, we already had it. There were already, already indentured servants. Um, you know, so, and I understand Virginia was there first, and of course they did... Uh, use slaves, but slavery is here even before that. There's a reason why, for example, when the pilgrims show up in 1620, the um, the Indians they came across, at least some of them could speak English. Why? Well, because they had already been enslaved by the British in Canada. Right. So, it, it, look, it, this wasn't something unique to Virginia or unique to the English colonies. This was something that was there before this point. Um, it, and to say that this was somehow the foundation of America is ridiculous, but what Reynolds is doing here is also equally as ridiculous. And Tocqueville just wasn't correct about this. Tocqueville rather aptly notes that slavery dishonors work, 
It introduces idleness into society and with it ignorance and haughtiness, poverty, and luxury. And invenerates the forces of the intellect and puts human activity to sleep. I mean, th this is just Tocqueville waxing about slavery. And of course, yeah, okay, that's fine. We can, we can agree with that. But the fact is, um, Tocqueville didn't really understand American history at this point. And this has always been the critique of Tocqueville from people that actually know something. In a statement not entirely in opposition to the narrative of the 1619 Project, Tocqueville asserts that the influence of slavery explains the mores and social state of the South. Well, again, Nicole Hannah-Jones would say that um, you know, Americans just didn't really believe in these ideals. Where Tocqueville's understanding differs in his belief is that these are not the mores which American society was built upon. He saw that it was instead the principal ideas of New England that today form the basis of the social theory of the United States. However, uh, Young Reynolds is skipping over the fact that Tocqueville said that race, uh, racism was actually worse in New England than it was in the South. So... Which, which New England are we talking about? I mean, again, you have to be very careful with this stuff. When you, when you start dealing with ideology against ideology, one ideology is going to win out, and what, you, what that's always going to confront, of course, is reality and their record, which I would say that the 1619 Project is a little stronger on the record, the actual actions of these people, than anything else. New England principles spread at first to the neighboring states, he writes, later they gradually won out in the most distant, and in the end, if I can express myself so, they penetrated the entire confederation. Well, that's curious because this is why, you know, Charles Sumner ran around trying to say that the South was dominating America in the 1850s. So if that's the case, then you would certain Sumner wouldn't have to make that point if that was the case. But he did have to make that point. Tocqueville insists that the general principles on which modern constitutions rest, the principles that most Europeans of the 17th centuries hardly understood and whose triumph in Great Britain was then incomplete, were all recognized and fixed by the laws of New England. Intervention of the people in public affairs, free voting of taxes, responsibility of the agents of power, individual freedom, and judgment by jury were established there without discussion and in fact. Um, well, again, um, you would have to question how New England created that when Virginia was the first place to do this. Not New England. But, uh, but who am I to critique the great Alexis de Tocqueville? Slavery may have been our nation's original sin, because that's a, that's a ridiculous statement. That, that's buying into the narrative of the 1619 Project or any of these other lefties. It wasn't an original sin. Slavery existed long before uh, America. Uh, and you have to look at the complicity of these other places involved in the trade and everything else. But the statement's just ridiculous. But it's not the foundation of our republic. And again, I would agree with young Master Reynolds when he says that. Uh, but... Um, this piece is indicative of uh, a young undergraduate who really doesn't understand American history uh, and needs uh, a little bit more seasoning uh, before writing about you know, how important de Tocqueville was or what de Tocqueville said was right or, in, or, right or not correct. I mean, th this, is, this is the problem with this. All right, so I've already gone a little long here. Uh, hope you enjoyed this week at the Brian McClanahan Show. If you want to get me five times, make sure you check out the Abbey Blue Institute podcast on Fridays or Saturdays whenever it goes up. But I'll see you next week. See you then.